that God has given me to share on is about living for an audience of one. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness, meaning to live in a godly way, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And when we live for an audience of one, everything else in our lives gets put into the correct alignment and everything in our lives falls into perspective. And I want to be really clear this morning, we cannot be lukewarm Christians. There is no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. We are all in on following Jesus. It's not serving God and the opinions of people or serving God and power or serving God and money or serving God and your own interests. It is Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And so I feel really strongly this morning that this is what we are going to be talking about, that we need to be all in on serving Jesus alone. And I don't know if you've sensed it, but we've entered a new season as a church family, and it's really exciting. Some of you aren't feelers. I'm one of those feelers. So the people who aren't feelers, you're free to roll your eyes at me right now. But (laughs) we have entered into a new doorway and a new season And I cannot wait to see what God is going to do. And I cannot wait to see the things that he is going to move in our midst. Oh, Tony, put the time up. Thanks, Tony. (laughs) Okay, I don't have nine hours to speak. I've only got half hour. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that God has made really clear to us as a mandate, as a local church family, is that we are to build his temple But we will only do it in the way that he asks us and do the things that he asks us. And if you look in the Old Testament at the instructions that God gave his people about building his temple, he was very, very specific. He was specific about the measurements. He was specific about the materials that they would use. He was specific about the people that were involved and who could go into which areas of the temple. And I believe that the risk at the moment is that we do something because it's a good idea And it's not necessarily God's plan for his church moving forward. And a couple of years ago, I was at an event. And in the middle of worship, God gave me this vision of Grace House. And what I saw was our Grace House building that was about the size of my hand. So it was quite small in the image. And written in the sky diagonally in the most beautiful golden color that I don't have earthly words to describe was written J. E-S-U-S. And there was darkness all around, but it did not matter from which angle that you looked at this building, Jesus was magnified in the sky. And that image is, it's stamped on my eyeballs, and it is so present in my mind that we will only do anything to make much of Jesus. And it should never be about us or our opinions, or our perceptions, or what we think is a good idea, but we are here to magnify the name of Jesus, to make his fame known throughout the earth and throughout the world. And so it is really important that we make much of him. And this morning, I, I really want to encourage you to listen to Holy Spirit. I am not a theologian, and I'm not a scholar, and I don't come with a whole bunch of theoretical concepts. I just come to share with you with what God has shared with me. And I want to encourage you to be attentive to anything that Holy Spirit puts his finger on in your heart and in your life. 
Maybe he brings encouragement or perspective or maybe he brings conviction. And if he brings conviction and when he brings conviction, I want to encourage you to lean in and to listen and to pay attention. Because anything that God reveals is in order to bring about healing in our hearts. It's not to bring shame. It's not to bring condemnation. It's not to make you just feel bad. But he will reveal the things that we have hidden. Thoughts, motives, desires, actions. And sometimes it's because of sin. And sometimes it's because God is so gracious and so patient with us that he will only deal with one or a couple of things at a time. And once he finishes dealing with one, he'll say, okay, we'll move on to the next thing now. But it is always to preserve us and to conform us to be more like Jesus. And so anything that he highlights to you, please pay attention and listen to what he would say. Because I believe it's really important where we give our attention, our affection, and our thoughts. Our attention is one of the greatest commodities that is being traded in the world today. We know about money and we know about time, but do you realize how important what happens between your ears and what goes on inside your mind actually is? And where we give our attention means where we give our focus, and it's going to impact upon our faith. How many of you know that if the first thing you do in the morning is you get up and you look at your phone and you start scrolling through social media, or if you turn on the TV and watch the news and you hear bad report after bad report after bad report after bad report, it's not a faith-building exercise. In fact, it's pretty discouraging. But if you wake up in the morning and you take the Word of God, just one verse you can take you don't have to take a whole chapter or a whole chunk of it one verse to meditate on it makes a huge difference to the heart posture and to the way that you live your life that day and God has been really challenging me of this lately that the first thing I would do before I lay my head on the pillow to go to sleep and the first thing that I would do when I wake up in the morning is to go through Psalm 23 quite truthfully I probably get through one or two verses and the morning time, I have found a profound impact upon my life. I'm in a season of life where I have four children and they are young. And I don't have the luxury of waking up in the morning and just lying in my bed for an extended period of time just to read and pray and rest and do anything else. Most of my wake-ups have probably happened multiple times through the night. And when it finally comes time to get up in the morning, it's very quick because... I don't know if you've noticed this about babies and toddlers, but they don't generally just say, sit there and say, please, mommy, I feel a little bit hungry. Do you think you could come and get me some breakfast? It starts with a wail or a scream or a yell or my brother didn't get me breakfast. Can you get me breakfast now? And the reality is I can still meditate upon the word of God in the time that I roll out of bed and go and serve a little one. The Lord is my shepherd and I have what I need. And it is incredible how that one verse in scripture makes a huge difference to my heart that would otherwise desire to grumble because I'm not a morning person. <laughs> I'm yet to become a morning person. And in the natural world, those who work in marketing and advertising know better than we cognitively realize the importance of our attention. There is a reason that two-year-olds in the West recognize what those golden arches are everywhere you go. 
Depending on your family, it might be because that's where you go to get chippies or that's where you go to get ice cream. And at a very, very young age, they have infiltrated their minds and their attention. They've captured their attention and it's made an impact upon the perception of what they think they need. And so when you have captured your attention and it gets your perception that this is the product or the service or the thing that you so, so desperately desire right now, it's going to absorb into your thinking. It's going to take over your focus. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your money. It's going to take your resources. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And I was reading a book a few years ago and the author had this scripture written down and they'd circled it and put in handwriting that means it's possible and it was this light bulb moment for me because until then I think I was swayed by so many different things that came into my mind but I came to this realization that actually I don't have to agree with the opinions of every person and I don't have to be swayed by the allurement of a career or of money or of power or of anything. I can take all of my thoughts captive and say, Jesus, will you show me what's important in this season? And so I want to ask you this morning, how are you going with managing your attention? And is your attention set on Jesus? Or have there been things that have crept into your mind and into your heart that are not what God would have you be doing and spending your time on. We are aware of the enemy, but we are not focused on him. John 10.10 10 says, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. And we need to be a people who are aware of the schemes of the enemy and of what he tries to do, but we do not focus on him. I have met people who will tell me everything that the devil is doing. Quite literally, I had a conversation with someone. They said, I went to the supermarket and the devil was on aisle four. And then I went to the checkout and there was a demon there. And then I went to the car park and there was two demons who were there and they were trying to talk to me and they were trying to do this. And then I went to the petrol station and there were more demons there. And I remember saying to them, I said, stop focusing on the enemy. I don't know if there's a demon around every corner. I know that there's a very real and present enemy, but stop focusing on the enemy because we carry the light of Christ in us and the light shines in the darkness. It is not hard to see evil and to see the plans of the enemy, but sometimes he's subtle and his purpose is only to steal, kill and destroy you. And if he can't do that in a physical example, if he can't steal something physically from you, then he will do that by trying to steal your joy or your thoughts or your peace, or your perception, or he'll cause you to doubt. Did God really say he would take care of you and provide for you? Did God really say that he would be your protection? Did God really say that he would fight for you? And so he wants you to doubt, which is the oldest trick in the book that we learned from the beginning of Genesis that he wants to question your identity and the authority and the role and everything that God has given you. And so we need to be really aware of him, but not focused on him. And there's a real difference because the enemy knows he cannot compete for the authority of God. He is no match for the power of God. And he's just no match in any way, shape or form for God Almighty. 
But he will try and distract you. He will try and take your concentration away from the task that you're supposed to be doing. Romans 12.21 says, Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Matthew 10.16 tells us to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And lots of translations say to be as shrewd as a serpent. And shrewd means to be astute and to have sharp powers of judgment. So we are not to be unaware of the very real enemy that we face, but we are very foolish if we give him our time and attention and affection that he does not deserve. Because if he is successful in attaining our attention, then that will influence the way in which we steward the truth of the word of God in our hearts. Proverbs chapter 4, reading from verse 20, says, My son, pay attention to my words. Listen closely to my sayings. Don't lose sight of them. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Don't let your mouth speak dishonestly and don't let your lips talk deviously. Let your eyes look forward, fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path for your feet and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or the left. Keep your feet away from evil. And we want to steward well everything that God has given us. And when the enemy wants to plant a seed in your heart, I want you to catch it, to find it, and to remove it so that it doesn't grow weeds in the garden of your heart because it will become increasingly difficult to do what God has asked you to do if the weeds are choking out the life of you. As followers of Jesus, we want to practice the way of Jesus and we want to live as citizens of heaven, which means that we are ambassadors here on earth and it means that we take up our cross daily and follow him. We were designed to give God glory. For any of you who've spent any time in the conservative stream of Christianity, you will have come across the Westminster Catechism and the very first question says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it was C.S. Lewis who said, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, then I can only conclude that I was not made for here. And we were made to follow in the way of Jesus. We were made to live like him, to love like him, to forgive like him. And realistically, that means that whilst we are still living and breathing on this earth, each of us still has a lot of work to do in this space. Jesus only did what he saw his father doing, and he spent time with his father, and then he obeyed every commandment that God gave him. You've probably heard it said before, delayed obedience is disobedience. I have my mom in my head as a teenager. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And so when God asks you to do something, sometimes it's going to be challenging and sometimes it's going to be hard. In Luke 9.23, he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and denying yourself are two things that we don't really like to do because they're hard and they're uncomfortable. But 
I have it on good authority from many Christians who've been walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive, that they're still working on this process. So be encouraged. It's a work in progress. You won't attain it all in the next seven days, but you can try. It's a good thing to die to yourself. And Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. That's what he promises. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. And the promise from God is not that you won't experience pain or suffering or trials or hardship or persecution or challenges, but that he will be with you. And I can testify in my own life that on the worst night of my life, Jesus was there. On the day when I got some news at the floor and it felt like the floor just dropped out from under me and I could barely breathe, God held me in that process too. And when I thought my year was going so bad and it then progressively got worse and worse and worse and worse for months on end, God never left me for a moment in the darkest and hardest seasons of my life. In Isaiah, he says, when you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through the fire, you won't be scorched and I will be with you. And so take heart if you are going through a struggle or a trial or a challenge right now. God sees that for one and you have not been abandoned or forgotten but he will be with you and he will carry you through. But sometimes the way out of the deep waters means that you still have to swim through an awful lot of water until you get to the surface. Keep swimming though. Don't camp out in the valley. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, reading from verse 7, says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. And jumping down to verse 16, it says, Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you living as a citizen of heaven? Are you living like an ambassador for Jesus here on earth? We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Do you desire the approval of God in all that you do? And are you spending time with him in his presence to hear what he would have to say to you, to speak to you, to encourage your heart, to lead you in the things that you should do in this season? I want to highlight three things that you'll be free to do when you live for an audience of one. There are lots, but for the sake of time, these are the three things that I feel like God's highlighted for me. They are firstly, when you live for an audience of one, you will have freedom in your expression of your worship and your love for the Lord. And I think about David who danced before the Lord, the Bible says in a linen ephod, and his wife, Saul's daughter, despised him 
because of that act of extravagant worship to the Lord. And I think of the woman who poured out her tears upon the feet of Jesus and gave the most expensive perfume to anoint him. And she wiped his feet with her hair. And the people around did not understand and they thought she was foolish. And it was an extravagant expression of love to God and an extravagant expression of worship, especially in an earthly sense. And yet it pleased God's heart. And there's a risk when someone says a freedom in expression that you have in your mind an idea of what that is supposed to be. The reality is it's going to be different for every person. And what it really is, is a heart posture. And I was reminded of uh, a situation that happened when I was about 13 in church. And for whatever reason, on this Sunday, I wasn't sitting with my family or my friends. I must have been doing something in the service. And I was sitting in the front row next to one of the leaders in our church. And the worship music started, and it was really exciting. And then there was this awful, awful, awful sound that came from somewhere near me. And I was shocked, firstly. And then I started looking around thinking, goodness me, what on earth is that? And I realized it was this leader who was standing next to me, singing to God with all his heart, who had a negative amount of musical ability. And I wanted to laugh and cry and be buried in the earth with secondhand embarrassment for him. And he just kept singing. He just kept singing and singing and singing. And he was um, obviously not musically gifted, very, very gifted administratively and organizationally. And I felt the impression of God that he was so pleased with this man. He was not one to be particularly expressive in his body. He was not one to raise his hands or to dance around or to even clap, just wasn't who he was. But he loved the Lord and he knew God had given him a voice that made sound, and he knew it was good to sing unto the Lord. He knew he couldn't sing in tune with the music band, but he was not deterred by the lack of his musical tone or lack thereof. He just gave what he had to, the God, to God, and it was an absolute delight to the Father's heart. And so when you live for an audience of one, you are free to express your love to the Lord in any way that your heart desires. And so don't be conformed into, it must look like this, and then I'm really being extravagant and worshiping God. I said, that's a religious lie. And the enemy would love nothing more than to trap you in some religiosity. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I was reminded of some lyrics this week that says, who else would rocks cry out to worship whose glory taught the stars to shine. Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing, but this joy is mine. And I tear up almost every time I hear it say that this joy is mine, that we as human beings get to sing to the Lord. We get to use words. We get to use any form of creativity that we have. But God doesn't even care so much about the outward expression, but he looks at the heart. So how's your heart posture towards worshiping Lord? In Psalms 34, verse 8, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And once you've tasted and seen, you want more and more and more of that good thing. And then it says, How happy is the one who finds his refuge in the Lord. 
And that is the only place where we will find true joy is in God. The second thing that will happen when you live for an audience of one is that you will be free to do all that God has called you to do, to be all that God has called you to be, and to run the race in the lane that God gives you with the strategy that God gives you and the grace that God supplies. Now, I'm not a runner. I clearly am not a runner. But once, once in my life, I thought it was fun to run 200 meters on the track. And when you run a 200-meter track event, you have a staggered start. And it took me forever as a kid to understand why. People would say, it's so good if you get the inside lane. And I didn't understand because I was on the inside lane starting way, way back from the people who were starting on the outside lane. And I couldn't understand in my mind that we actually were running the same distance, but because of the curve in the track, you started from different staggered points. And so often in my heart, I'd be like, I want to be in that spot. I want to be in that spot over there that's further forward. It's not fair. Why do I have to be in this spot here? And I think that we do that really often as Christians or as people, that we look at what other people are doing and we compare ourselves to where their starting position of the tra- on the track is. And it's not what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to stay in the lane that God gives us. And when you run track event, you've got a, a white marker on either side and you stay between that. And depending on your strengths and your gifts and your abilities, the strategy that you have is necessarily going to look different to somebody else. And that's okay. And that's actually a good thing. But we are foolish for comparing ourselves to everybody else. And it is one of the most freeing and beautiful things about following wholeheartedly unto Jesus that you get to be who God has called you to be. And I have spent a lot of my life apologizing for who I am in every way, shape or form. And I've been so stuck under the fear of man and appeasing other people that have completely lost who God actually wanted me to be. And part of my personality is that I love to help people. I love to serve people. But you actually cannot appease everybody. And you can't make everybody happy. But I sure have tried. And I have apologized. Let me, let me share this with you. I have apologized. This is ridiculous. For my hobbies. I apologized for doing well in school. I apologized for doing well in my career. I had a manager tell me one time when she found out how old I was and what I was doing um, that my relationship with her completely changed because she said I should never, ever, 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 ever have that kind of job. I was far, far, far too young. She had no idea that God opened doors in incredible ways for me to do what I was doing. And I wasn't seeking it, but God had led me to do that. I have apologized for being called into ministry. I have apologized for being called into leadership. And I have apologized for being a female. I don't actually, I'm not actually sorry that God made me a woman. And I have no desire to change that. And God said to me about six or seven years ago, he said, why are you apologizing for the gifts that I have given you? I was the one who chose what your gifts would be. Your job is to steward them and to give them back to me. So why are you apologizing for that? And I said, God, I've hit the trifecta. I'm a female in leadership and in ministry, and that upsets a lot of people. And he said, so? Didn't I call you to do this? 
And then I had to repent. (laughs) Uh, And it has been the most freeing thing in my life to step into the fullness of what God has called me to do in the season that he calls me to do it. I still struggle with the fear of man, to be sure, but it's something that God is working in me, and I, I recognize the beautiful thing that it is to serve him with what he has given me, because the thing is, if we truly knew what God thought about each of us, we would never desire to be anybody else or to do what anybody else is doing. But you have to understand what God says about you and what he's speaking to you and what he wants you to do for you to know the fullness of your assignments and your callings here and now. And the thing is, there is room for every single person in the family of God. Heaven is not going to be crowded. We're not going to run out of uh, things to do or things to say, but we are part of one body And we do have different parts to play. But if you're not playing your part, then the rest of the body is suffering. If you're spending your time looking at what somebody else's gifts are or whatever it is they're achieving, then you're probably missing out on doing what God has asked you to do. And the whole body will suffer when we don't live doing the things that God has called us to do in the way that he has called it. All are required and all are desired. And then finally, I might ask the worship team to come back, if that's okay, please. When you live for an audience of one, you're able to give love and kindness away like Jesus did, despite the personal cost to you here on earth. And I've been meditating for the last few weeks on the kindness of Jesus on the radical kindness of Jesus. We cannot say that we are followers of Jesus and do nothing. Faith without deeds is dead. And to follow Jesus means that we do the things that Jesus did and we act in the way that he did. And I wanna read to you a story from John chapter eight, reading from verse two, because this was a story that undid me. At from chapter, sorry, verse two, it says, at dawn, He went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. And you know what got me about this story? Is that Jesus was radically kind towards the woman without qualifying what sins he was and wasn't okay with. Jesus is not okay with sin. The wages of sin is death, and sin separates us from God. 
But you know what we often do? Is we say, love the sinner and hate the sin. And I just wanna make sure that everybody knows that I am not okay with this sin. And we'll make that really, really clear so that you have the right perception about me. And then I will go and love the person. And Jesus didn't do that. He simply loved her. And it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Repentance keeps us humble and in right understanding that God is God, that God is good, and that we are not. And that when we were unlovely, He loved us. We had nothing to offer Him and He still chose us. And He called us out of the pit And freely we have been given the grace of God, but sometimes we hold that onto ourselves and we do not extend that freedom of grace and love towards other people. And God, forgive us for when we have done that. For the grace that we have received, we should freely give away. And sometimes people might not understand something kind that you do for someone else when God asks you to do it. But Jesus wasn't worried about the perception that the Pharisees and the religious people wanted to throw against him. He was concerned about loving as the Father had demonstrated to him the one that was in front of him. And the kindness of Jesus is just this outworking of his grace towards us. And the thing is, if Jesus asks you to love somebody or to show kindness to somebody, God will never disappoint you. You may disappoint other people. In fact, I can almost guarantee you're going to disappoint some people. But does it really matter when we're living for the approval of one? Because that's what matters, that we do what God has asked us to do. And the more you see the goodness of God and His character and His grace and His love and His kindness and His mercy towards you, you cannot hold that in and you must freely give it away. And the Bible says the more you seek Him, the more you find Him. And I have found that the more that I have found Him, the more that I love Him. And I desire nothing more than to please His heart. Though to be sure, there are some challenges and trials that you will face along the way. We were made to live in relationship with one another. We were made to have connection with other humans. But what Jesus says about me is more important than what anybody else could say. And the same is true for you. So just as I close, I'm going to invite you to stand. And I just want to finish by reading Philippians from Philippians chapter 4. We might do a song if that's okay, Hannah. Thank you. And in case you're not sure what you can meditate on or what you can think about or what you can pray through, these words found in the Bible are really good things for your heart and mind to contemplate. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. God, I thank you for your great mercy towards us. Jesus, I thank you for the example of kindness 
that you lived a life serving others and loving them. God, I pray that we would be a people who live for an audience of one. That we would be so surrendered and yielded to you that we would do everything obedience that you, that you call us to do, that you ask us to do, and that our eyes would be so fixed upon you. God, I pray your beauty and your joy and your grace would radiate through us and to others, that we truly would be light and life and salt to a broken world who desperately needs you. God, would you forgive us for where we have prioritized anything equal or above you, that there is only one God and that we are so grateful for the mercy that you have shown us, that you chose us, that you saved us, that you called us even when we were unlovely. And I pray that you would help us to be conformed more into the image of your son, that Jesus, you would be Lord over our lives and that we would be a humble people submitted to you, walking in your ways, doing everything that you have called and asked us to. In the beautiful name of Jesus, I pray, amen.